Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. At Acuity Insurance, we believe the things you do for your business are heroic. And you deserve someone equally heroic to protect them. We put our all into covering your business so you can focus on the things you love most. That's the power of heart. Acuity Insurance, wholeheartedly for you. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of August 26th, 2019, as the Chicago White Sox just wrapped up another series win, this time over the Texas Rangers winning three out of four. And on this episode, we'll recap the series highlights as Jose Abreu reaches 100 RBIs again. Yoan Mikata is back, and we'll talk about Tim Anderson's fielding. We'll preview the upcoming series against the Minnesota Twins as we ponder if Lucas Giolito can dominate them again. Also, Rick Hahn spoke to the media, and again, remained noncommittal in being more aggressive in acquisitions for this upcoming offseason, and we're still not sure if he believes that the 2020 White Sox can be a competitive team in trying to win the American League Central. What we do know is that the White Sox will have the lowest payroll in baseball after this season, so there is plenty of opportunity for the club to spend. Does spending money always mean more wins? Well, our first guest will be coming from Fangraphs.com, and it's Craig Edwards, who will explain the correlation between spending and winning, plus why we are seeing weaker bullpen performances across the league. Our second guest is on a once-of-a-lifetime trip. Joey Mellows is from England, and he decided to fly across the Atlantic to watch baseball for 162 days. He's visiting every ballpark in the league, plus a few minor league stadiums. And I catch up with Joey, who just visited Guaranteed Rate Field this weekend to hear about his experiences, and he shares his thoughts on why going to White Sox games is more fun than going to Wrigley. Of course, we'll have the minor league report and answer your questions at the end of the show in P.O. Sox. 
We have a lot of show to cover this episode, so let's get to it. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The White Sox win another series. They're 60 and 70 on the season. And so far through this tough 30-game stretch we talked about a couple weeks ago, the White Sox are 9-8, and eight, and they're playing much better baseball late. And how about those player weekend uniforms? Oh, yeah, they somehow you know looked bad while looking good, although to the White Sox, uh, to the White Sox credit, and I think this is something we can always say basically about all the various looks and uh, alternate uniforms and, and uh, you know the, the special hats and uh, special bats and all the kinds of promotional um, you know uniforms and, and different ways the league imposes looks on teams that the White Sox with their black and white color scheme really never look as bad as the rest of the league like they sometimes make bad looks look good. And in this case, I don't think there's any really salvaging the uniforms for anybody, but uh, they looked most natural on the White Sox. I think, you know, if you took their hat and gave it the same outline, uh, that kind of grayish silver outline as the jerseys had, it could have been actually kind of good looking. The hat made it look awkward and, and uh, out of place, but um, just because they don't use colors and they and they rely on that black and white for a lot of their look and they, they wear those black alternate uniforms so much, uh, it actually didn't look terrible, and the rest of the league uh, was really a mess. The white uniforms was a terrible idea. Yeah. A terrible idea. Even Joe Madden, because the Chicago Cubs had to wear all white, over the weekend was criticizing Major League Baseball for the uniforms that they're wearing. I mean, what's the point of having nicknames on the back of a uniform if you can't read it? Or the kind of hats where pitchers can't wear them? Yeah, exactly. Nobody thought about that. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, and, and the, yeah, the White Sox. I think I don't think the White Sox could have saved those uniforms. I think there's just too much wrong with them from you know, the pitchers not being able to wear the same hats to the logos and, and letters not being able to be seen um, to them looking just like every other team. At least with some, there was some definition on the black uniforms to distinguish them. The whites were, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how that got through because when I saw that, you know, when I saw the, the mock-ups and then the, uh, they released them, I thought, well, maybe this will look better on TV somehow. You know, maybe it doesn't look good on a screen, but when they're actually in action, and no, they looked worse. And especially like for a marquee series between the Yankees and Dodgers, two of the most classic uniforms uh, playing a regular season series that could be a World Series preview. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of a showcase for the sport. And they look like every other team like you could. That was the other weird thing about the uniforms is you could watch any highlight and have no idea who was playing. Right. Exactly. This, this was a terrible yeah. idea. Yeah, and then the White Sox somehow, like, if the White Sox does, you know, the, the White Sox could have spun those uniforms into a decent look. The rest of the league would have been lost. So at least, you know, the White Sox have that going for them uh, with their uniforms that uh, it, it always, it, it, it makes it really hard for it to look bad. And uh, they, then the league tried, but at least they were able to uh, talk out of it by wearing the black ones. Well, you know what they say, Jim. Back to the drawing board for Major League Baseball's marketing arm that will decide what they will be wearing next year during the player weekend. Uh, Hopefully it is a much better and more creative look than what we saw this year. Now on the field, Jose Abreu reached 100 RBIs on the season again. This is the fifth time in his six seasons with the Chicago White Sox that he has reached 100 RBIs. Jason Benetti and Steve Stone had, I thought, a good discussion during the broadcast about the merits of RBIs. 
And I don't know if Jason Benetti is listening at the moment, but I agree with Benetti. RBIs is a fine stat, but if you're trying to build a good team, a winning team, you should not consider RBIs when trying to build that lineup because it's based on how often a batter has runners on base to drive them in. If you want to build a better lineup, I prefer weighted runs created plus. How about you, Jim? Do you still consider 100 RBIs in a season a significant milestone? I consider it a milestone. I think it's yeah, I, I think it's really hard for a player to have 100 RBIs and have like a, a season that wasn't enjoyable, especially I think in this game you know, with this maybe in like some kind of uh, you know massively stacked lineup, you can have a guy who has a uh, 270 on base percentage and somehow lucks into 100 RBIs because he happened to be hitting like sixth for the 1996 Cleveland Indians or something like that. But for a lineup in this uh, this era where it's harder to hit and such, um, and on base percentages are dropping lower, it's it's a significant accomplishment. I think it's you know RBIs and wins and you know they're they're kind of falling out of favor. And, and same thing with batting average. Um, you, these stats that really don't have a whole lot of predictive value. Um, it, and and they shouldn't be used necessarily for predictive value. But I think it's a fine stat for saying how often a player was involved in something that was enjoyable. And I think a run crossing the plate is something that's enjoyable uh, in most cases. Sometimes, you know, it's a cheap, uh, like a, a fielder's choice or like a, um, you know, just a ground out that uh, scores a run or something like that. And it's not that uh, not that exciting. And, you, and it's not in a situation where you can trade a run for an out and nobody feels great about it. But by and large, it's uh, the hitter doing something right, uh, especially with the way uh, Braves' stats are and the way the, you know, the White Sox lineup has been better at getting on base in front of them, but not great. So, yeah, it's fine. Um, I wouldn't use it as a predict, and I'm not. I didn't hear that exchange, so I don't know if Stone was saying that it's predictive, or that because he had 100 RBIs before the end of August this season, uh, he'll be just as. Uh, well suited to do it again next year. Uh, I wouldn't use it for that, but as a stat that uh, reflects how good of a season somebody had, uh, I would say in most cases, does the job good enough, or at least it's not worth fighting over. I think that's a good point. I think for Jose Abreu reaching 100 RBIs with how bad this lineup has been, especially in the second half of this season where they're still one of the league's worst offenses, I find that to be impressive, that he's still somehow got to 100 RBIs and he the rest of his numbers are starting to normalize his slash line is looking much better uh he's now about 10 percent better than league average if you're using weight runs cradle plus he's hovering around 110 if not a little bit more above that after the weekend I, I just think that when we are moving forward and you know we're gonna have the offseason plans coming up in about a, a month and a half it's gonna be that time again I think for baseball fans that want to align themselves with maybe with what most of the teams are trying to use today to build winning teams and configure lineups that will score a lot of runs, I wouldn't be picking guys and saying, well, he should bat third because he drove in 110 runs last year. Well, I think there are other metrics that you should be looking at. And that was Jason Benetti's argument. And then Chuck Garfine, I think, is the the main culprit in the NBC broadcast booth who was really defending RBIs and that they're still a valuable stat. I just think RBIs is fine. I still enjoy RBIs. Uh, I just think that moving forward, when we are looking at ways that the White Sox could improve offensively and which players they should target – 
I'm not going to weigh how many RBIs they had heavily. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, when it comes to like a Braves 100 RBIs, I think him doing it before the end of August is impressive. I would say like maybe if he had like 38 homers uh, at the end of the season and barely got across the 100 RBIs mark, that might suggest that he's not doing a whole lot with other opportunities or you know maybe there weren't many opportunities to have that, but that also could mean that uh, you know if he wasn't driving himself in and with, with somebody else on base, he really wasn't doing a whole lot, at least, you know, over the course of an average game. But, you know, when it comes to a guy doing it with uh, more than a month to go, that's kind of cool. Yeah, he's got a shot at 120. Yeah. I mean, when, you, when you're when when you talking about 120 RBIs in a season, I I will say that carries a lot more weight than 100. Yeah. Because not too many guys get to 120. Yeah, 120 is a, is a good um, back-of-baseball card, black ink type number. It really is. I mean, it reminds you of like the great Paul Konerko or even the great Frank Thomas years, even driving in 120 plus RBIs in a season. So hopefully Abreu reaches that because that means the offense is still clicking. And I think the offense will continue to click as long as they have Yohan Makata in the lineup. And who knows, maybe Yohan Makata in a future season will drive in 100 RBIs just like Jose Abreu, but in his first two games back from the injured list, uh, Mikado went two for four in both games with a double and a home run. He went hitless in the next two games, but Jim, this offense, especially the first two games of the series against the Rangers, looks different in a good way when Mikado is in this lineup, even though Renteria is currently having a back cleanup, which... I don't mind. I mean, clearly he's got enough power. He's still one of the league leaders in average exit velocity, so he hits the ball hard. I think you could put him anywhere in the lineup and he'll be successful. Well, maybe not lead off as much. But to bring back an old an oldie topic, but I still think a goodie, is Yoan Mikata the White Sox fulcrum? No, I would say he's above the fulcrum. When it comes to the fulcrum, that's kind of a, a term I use to figure out whether a lineup has enough good bats to sustain an attack for longer than like a couple batters at a time. And I would say when it comes to like the White Sox having a good dangerous lineup, I would put Moncada above that. I would put Jose Abreu above that. And then, you know, right now, Eloy Jimenez right now, I think might be a fulcrum candidate where if he hits like he should, uh, the lineup looks a lot more dangerous. I think if he you know, continues to have uh, good games followed by bad games and a lot of grounders and weak contact and chasing and such, uh, then the White Sox lineup looks a lot thinner and a lot easier to retire Or if you pitch around or manage to avoid Abreu and Moncada in big spots. So he looks like a fulcrum candidate. Uh, Tim Anderson could be one, although I don't think he... Um, I, I think his offensive approach is so unique and his lack of walks, uh, his lack of walks is going to be chronic. Um, he's he's going to have to uh, uh, scrape together offense the hard way. I don't think you want counting on him to uh, to build a lineup. But like back in the uh, Avi Garcia days, he was the fulcrum because if he could put it together, um, that lineup was going to look a lot more dangerous. And in most cases, he never did. And uh, they were always missing something, always uh, um lacking runs and and uh, guys who could keep the line moving and so I think uh, Moncada right now is safely above it as long as he can stay healthy uh, and yeah it's nice to see that left-handed power bat finally in the lineup again because uh, the White Sox really hadn't had anything from the left side as long as uh, Moncada was out yeah that's a sticking point and something we're going to be paying attention to in this offseason because even Steve Stone has been tweeting about this 
that he also thinks that the White Sox desperately need to get another left-handed power bat, whether through free agency or trade. So interesting to see the White Sox color guy now making his proclamations on the public sphere using Twitter to let the White Sox know that he thinks that they need to get another left-handed bat to pair with Yohan Mikata. Because clearly, I mean, right now in the current state of the White Sox, John Jay, I think is just a singles guy. And he's start, <laughs> he's going to just become a bunt guy pretty soon. Yeah, he can't really do anything with the pole field anymore. Uh, and it was funny hearing Stone, uh, well, he ripped Jay, but not he didn't rip he didn't rip Jay in like a... a uh, over the top way, or at least a direct line. He just took a very sarcastic. Oh, that's what you want to see—a bunt in the uh, second inning, left hand, left hander facing a righty. Like, yeah. You know, anyway, <laughs> right. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it too. And just like between this and the uh, and laying track, or at least uh, joining the fans in trying to address White Sox problems, or at least looking ahead to them and trying to figure out how they can improve the team, he is slowly, you know, after spending a, a good few weeks, uh, you know, criticizing the fan base or saying that they're getting impatient, he's kind of sliding over to our side of the table and, uh, and, 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 and slumming with us a bit, which I kind of like to see. And then continuing the list, I mean, Lurie Garcia from the left-hand side, not a lot of power. Yomer Sanchez, I think in a month and a half after the World Series, we're going to be talking about is Yomer even going to get tendered a contract? Is he going to be with the White Sox in 2020? So right now, I mean, it's Yohan Mikata, and the hope is maybe Zach Collins can get himself into the mix and prove on the major league level that he can take some of his skills that he's shown from AAA and apply it into the major leagues. But if he cannot, I mean, even Matt Skoll is not really hitting for power either. Uh, the, the White Sox on the left-handed side as far as in the lineup, it, it's becoming far more increasingly of a need that they need someone to help out Yohan Mikata from the left-hand side. Now, that's the offense with Abreu reaching 100 RBIs and Mikata's back, so hopefully the offense will continue to get better for the White Sox in the remaining 32 games of the season. One area that is starting to regress and fans are definitely starting to take notice is Tim Anderson's defense. Now, Anderson over the weekend offensively was 4 for 17, and there's a lot of attention at his batting average as he's at 328, which as soon as he qualifies for the batting average title, he's going to be in a tight race in the American League. He's got a chance to win the batting title in the American League, which is super impressive and a great sign to see from Anderson. But with when it comes to Tim Anderson, there's always balance. So for every good, there's something that's dragging him down. And this time, it's his defense. And the errors are building up. He had two more fielding errors on Sunday. And he has 23 errors on the season. 12 of those 23 are fielding errors. 11 of them are throwing. If you use more advanced defensive metrics, ultimate zone rating, Anderson ranks 20th out of 22 qualified shortstops. Defensive runs saved, he ranks 19th out of 22 qualified shortstops. He has negative five defensive runs saved after being zero last year, so that's a five-run difference. And using inside edge fielding, which you can look up these metrics on fan graphs, when there is a ball in play that has a 90% or higher out probability, Anderson is converting 95.4% of those tries. 
That ranks 21st out of 22 shortstops. Between 60 to 90%, he is converting 67.7% of those tries. That ranks 18th out of 22 shortstops. And then 40 to 60%, he is 50% on the year. He's 6 for 12 converting those opportunities. He ranks 15th out of 22. And any ball in play that has a less than 40% chance of being converted for an out, Tim Anderson is 0 for 19. Even though he is making these highlight plays, super impressive that we've seen, especially moving to his right gym and making those throws deep into the hole between shortstop and third. The errors are picking up. And when you compare him to the other shortstops in Major League Baseball defensively, Tim Anderson falls way short. He is close to the bottom again defensively. Is Anderson's defense regressing back to his 2017 form, which he was the worst in Major League Baseball? And should we be worried about his defense again? Yeah, it's it's a little bit troubling, um, and we've seen Anderson have hot and cold stretches, and, and I'd been, I'd been waiting for a lot of the season. I know I've gotten emails and and, uh, and and tweets about Anderson and whether to move him off and the error total. And I've always been loath to place too much importance on the error total, just because I remember the White Sox moving Jose Valentin offshore because of his error total, even though he did so much well at shortstop. He just, you know, he missed a whole bunch of easy plays, but he also made some difficult ones, also provided an incredible bet at shortstop. They ended up moving him off, bringing in Royce Clayton. Royce Clayton was terrible, uh, and the White Sox really just kind of wasted the rest of Valentin's career. So I, I didn't really want to see the White Sox go down that road or just, like, move Anderson or, or stump for moving Anderson without a replacement in place. Um, but with this now, uh, you know, with the way his defense has been kind of in a funk all season, as you mentioned, the, uh, the numbers aren't good. And, and before when Anderson's numbers, like his ultimate zone rating and, and, and metrics weren't good is mainly because of the errors is mainly because, uh, you know, the, just any kind of positive plays he made on the edges of his range, he might undermine with plays he should have made. And so he was like net average, but the tools for an above average shortstop were there. As he mentioned, uh, it, there is, really isn't a reliable um, above average shortstop formula here right now. And he made that great play in the hole where he made that uh, incredible off balance throw from, uh, I don't know how many feet away it was, but you know, on the fly in time. And they talked to him after the game and they said that Joe, you know, he and Joe McEwing work on that play. And uh, you know, they work on that throw and, and that's just practice. And, and that's uh, opportunity meeting, meeting preparation. And I thought about that. It's like, yeah, it's cool. And I thought, wait, you know, he's making all these errors. <laughs> you know, how's he explaining the rest of his game and, and, and the, you know, the, the easily preventable errors that, uh, you know, he's been committing. So it's, he's, he's at a little bit of a crossroads. And I think, you know, fortunately his bat has allowed him to be a contributor because if he had like previous year's bat with this year's defense, you might be talking about finding just, you know, a brand new shortstop. And some people are, we got a, uh, P.O. Sox question from Brandon, who was asking about, you know, whether the White Sox should look at somebody like Didi Gregorius, bring him in and solve the outfield position by, you know, moving Anderson to the outfield and then maybe have some kind of outfield alignment with Eloy and Anderson and Luis uh, Robert. And maybe that's, you know, a way you can get a workable outfield, even if it isn't, uh, you know, finding somebody from the outside. And, you know, when, when Anderson plays shortstop like this and he's hitting well enough, it's a valid question. I, I think I worry 
about Anderson's offensive skill set being so hard to sustain uh, that you really need him to be a good shortstop in order to really max out all his value. I, I think if you try to put him in a corner and you get somebody who draws uh, like 10 walks a season, uh, that's just really hard to get that kind of value from, you know, even if you put him in center or whatever, it's just like, it's still, uh, kind of a hard, um, way to make a living for an outfielder when they need, when like an outfield upgrade is really their biggest thing. So it's, it's going to be tricky with him. And, uh, that's one of the things I'd like to see in September. Um, uh, you know, September is the White Sox playing out the string once again, but I think his defense and stabilizing his play, would go a long way to kind of feeling better about what exactly he's going to look like in 2020. Going to the play index for baseball reference, looking at all the shortstops in Major League Baseball that have at least 300 plate appearances and have played 51% of their games at shortstop. It's 29 shortstops in Major League Baseball. Anderson is 15th in war. He is one of the top six offensive shortstops in Major League Baseball. He's at the bottom six of shortstops in Major League Baseball, and thus he is average. He's the average shortstop yeah. in Major League Baseball. And I, it is going to be something to think about next year. If he improves defensively, will this his offensive tear regress? Because, again, he's putting a lot of balls in play, and he's been successful this season. Will that continue? Will these errors continue, or will he find a way to be more consistent defensively like he was in 2018? So he's done it. He's played better defense at shortstop. But yeah, the especially the last month, it's just not been as consistent as you would like it to be for your starting shortstop for Tim Anderson. But you know what? There's still another month left in the season. Hopefully he could turn around. And uh, again, he just needs to be a little bit more consistent and converts the plays that he needs to convert, especially those plays that have 90% higher out probability that are hit to him because that ranking is just way, yeah. way too low. Yeah, and I, and I like that question from Brandon just because, you know, I've heard so much, you got to move Anderson off shortstop. And, like, who else do they have? Like, why do you want to, you know, move him off shortstop if, you know, it's just going to be Yolmer Sanchez playing there or Larry playing there when Larry already has uh, you know, enough on his table and another position to uh, fill. So, you know, it makes sense to stick with Anderson when nobody else is there. But it's it's worth, you know, putting on the table just, you know, if that's, you know, all your avenues for improving the team. Uh, that might be one of them. I think it's hard just because, as we talked about, the White Sox lack of walks and lack of power. It's really hard to, I guess, use that outfield vacancy on a right-handed hitter who doesn't draw walks. Um, but and Gregorius really isn't a walk guy either, or at least he's not a uh, um, you know typical. You know, he's somebody who shortstop provides a lot of his value, and he just came back from Tommy John surgery, banged up his shoulder again today. So, I guess we'll see how he finishes the season, but. Uh, it's not a bad idea, and it's a way to look at it. And I think, uh, you know, if you're going to say uh, right now with the way the White Sox, I guess, depth chart is, if you're going to float Anderson moving off the position, then, you know, it's good to think about who else is going to be playing there. And, like, finding a shortstop from the outside, maybe not uh, a terrible idea, even though I think it's might be a hard way to make a really big gain by doing so. Well, let's shift gears and preview the upcoming Minnesota Twins series to the White Sox. Continue to stay home as they have Monday off, but they play a three-game series against the American League Central leading Minnesota Twins Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. But first, a word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way 
to buy tickets. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd. They built the fastest way to find tickets so you can stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. And a couple reasons why I use SeatGeek all of the time to buy White Sox tickets. I just bought six tickets this past weekend on Saturday off SeatGeek to take some of my friends to go to the game. We had a blast. And again, SeatGeek pulls together millions of tickets from all over the web, and they rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10, and they have an interactive seat map. So you could see what the view looks like from your seats before buying, and they also have the option of listing all the prices with the fees so you don't get sticker shock when you start going through the checkout process when buying tickets. And the best part is, is that our listeners get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone today and use promo code SOCKSMACHINE. That's promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. And again, the, the Minnesota Twins are coming into town to face the Chicago White Sox on the south side. The Twins are 79 and 51 on the season. They are 7 and 3 in their last 10 games. They are better on the road than they are at home this year, which is interesting. They are 40 and 22 on the road and 39 and 20, 29 at home. And currently, the Twins have a three and a half game lead on the Cleveland Indians. We'll get to that. In a moment, your pitching problems for this series starting at Tuesday and Wednesday. These are the night games at 7, 10 p.m. Central Time. On Tuesday, it'll be Lucas Giolito against Michael Pineda. On Wednesday, Ross Detweiler, who's coming off eight strikeout performance against the Rangers, will be going up against Jake Odorizzi, which the White Sox were able to beat him up a little bit last time he they faced him in Minneapolis. And on Thursday, this is a 1.10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Dylan Cease against Jose Barreo. So another tough test for the rookie. And Jim, the Minnesota Twins got some luck this weekend as Cleveland was hit again by the injury bug. This time, it's Jose Ramirez possibly out for the rest of the season with a broken hammock bone. Minnesota needs this series more than the White Sox as they could continue to extend their lead and build up a cushion in the American League Central. Can the White Sox play spoilers again like they did last week? I think they can, at least temporarily. But when you look at the strength of schedule and just what the Indians have the rest of the way, um, they might only be like a temporary speed bump. I'm looking at the, uh, you know, the, this twin schedule, and right now they, they play the White Sox last week, uh, and then followed by the Tigers. This week it's White Sox followed by the Tigers, and that's a pretty you know favorable schedule for them. I think the Minnesota paper called uh, their their uh, their schedule the dregs of the American League, which is uh, you know the White Sox uh, at least uh, stood up for themselves. The Tigers the weren't quite able to do so, but they have like a tough stretch, like in the early September, they have the Red Sox, Indians, and Nationals back to back to back, but then the rest of the way, and then the Indians again, but then like wrapping up their season, White Sox, Royals, Tigers, Royals. Uh, the Indians really don't have anything like that. They played Tigers a couple times, but they basically when the twin schedule is weak, the Ray, uh, the Indian schedule is pretty tough. And when the, uh, when the twin schedule toughens up, there is really isn't that much of an advantage. So I think uh, as long as the twins more or less hold serve or, or at least don't completely cave into some terrible teams, uh, I think uh, they might have survived their biggest scare already. 
Hmm. Very interesting. Well, then I guess they'll be positioning themselves to either face New York or Houston in the first round of the playoffs. And then Cleveland's going to have to look over their shoulder as they're going to be in a tight race the rest of the year with Tampa and Oakland uh, to secure two of the wild card spots in the postseason. One of those teams is going to be sitting at home watching the postseason, even though Tampa, Oakland, and Cleveland are all projected to win more than 90 games this year. Too bad these teams are not in the National League Central. Uh, as they would be projected to to win the division by three games or even more. But we're going to talk more about Tampa, Cleveland, and Oakland in our next segment as Jim and I will reconvene later in the show for P.O. Sox. But coming up next, we explore the correlation in Major League Baseball between winning percentage and team payroll with Fangraphs writer Craig Edwards next on the Sox Machine Podcast. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X5 gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. While Rick Hahn remains non-committal to whether the White Sox in 2020 will flip the switch to go from rebuilder to contender, there are a couple of angles we can draw attention to that would help the White Sox chances of becoming a winning team sooner than later. One is the correlation of team payroll to winning, and second is the always pressing issue of bullpens, as some contenders today are having trouble locking down games late. Where do the White Sox stack up against the league for both topics? Well, join us for the first time from Fangraphs.com. It's Craig Edwards. And hello, Craig. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Let's start with team payrolls and winning percentage because this is a hot topic for White Sox fans. Long-time season ticket holders are now tweeting and emailing saying that they are receiving communications that they must pay for their 2020 deposit in September, and some are seeing as much as an 8% increase in season tickets. Naturally, those season ticket holders are wondering if the White Sox payroll will go up because of this, and well, most of us are doubtful that will happen. But when we look at team payrolls and compare that to winning percentage, what have you found as far as identifying trends when it does come to the team payroll and their level of success? You know, I think that uh, when when you look at payroll and winning, it's not you, you don't have to spend money to, to win. I, I think you, you see examples of that every year in in Oakland and uh, you know Tampa are the, the the sort of the the prime examples, Cleveland as well. But what spending money does do is it generally insulates you from from being terrible. It makes you a competitive team. It gives you positive expectations uh, for 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 the season. And then if you look at spending over the uh, a number of years, say you know three or four seasons, generally speaking, the best teams are the ones to who who win uh, the. You know, the the most, uh, you know, you're talking about your Dodgers, your Yankees, your Red Sox, uh, the 
the teams that that spend, especially over a, a period of several years, uh, there's a high correlation between between the spending and the winning. And uh, at the other end of the spectrum, the the teams that don't spend tend to lose. And that's sort of where the White Sox have been the past past three or four years. I'm glad you mentioned Tampa Bay, Oakland, as and Cleveland because there are White Sox fans that defend the current front office and do defend Jerry Reinsdorf, saying in the past that the team has spent money and they think that $125 million payroll is a lot of money, which when you compare to all the teams in Major League Baseball, I mean, where would a $125 million, million payroll, Craig, rank in baseball today? Uh, that's in the bottom half. Bottom uh, half, okay. Yeah, I think that if you're, especially if you're talking about, um, you know, end of season payroll, um, it, it's even, it's even more, um, uh, you know, the, when I think the right now that the average opening day payroll was somewhere around 130, 135 million dollars. So, uh, and then you tack on about every team tax on about 10 or 15 million at the end of the end of the season through, you know, benefits, things like that when the league calculates the, the entire payroll. So, so you're, you're looking at the end of the season, something, you know, around 145 million, uh, maybe even 150 million in, in terms of, of what's average. So, you know, I think when you, you think about a hundred million pay, hundred million dollar payroll, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you, you might think, oh, then you're doing pretty well, but a hundred million dollars isn't really close to, to what the bar is. You know, you're, you're, you're in the bottom bottom end. If you're talking about a hundred million dollars, um, if you want to be, be in the top half, you know, you're, you're talking about 100, 140, 150 million dollars. So despite the White Sox being in a major market in Chicago, they spend money like they are the Rays, A's and Indians. So try to be optimistic here based on Jerry Reinsdorf's spending habits as of late. How do the Rays, A's and Indians find a way to be a consistent winner, in your opinion, despite having one of the lowest payrolls in baseball? Well, I think that uh, where you, you look at the Rays, it's the, the the way they've you know identified and, and developed young players. Uh, for the A's, it's just a constant churn, um, you know. And and you look at you know both of these teams have had down years over the past few seasons. Um, it's not like uh, they're winning ninety games every year. You know, you look at. Uh, two years ago, um, I, I don't think Tampa was as good. I can't remember where Oakland was at, but, uh, you know, it's you, you have those seasons, um, when you're sort of, you know, in the middle there trying to, to, to reach up without those big payrolls, you have those seasons where, where things don't go as well. Cleveland almost had that season this year. Um, but, uh, you know, Francisco Lindor came back, Jose Ramirez turned things around and, and all of a sudden they're, they're back where everybody expected them to be at the, at the beginning of the season. But generally teams that start winning um, and, you know, they want to build from that core that they already have, they tend to add uh payroll and they add players and you know obviously we've seen that with the cubs over the the last few years we've seen that with the astros who you know when they first made it to the playoffs their payroll was very very low and now they're up you know among the top 10 teams uh and so teams once they start being successful their payrolls tend to, to move forward and i think that the White Sox in particular, they need to decide when it is that they want to to, to be successful. Uh, you know, if you want to keep comparing them to, to say, the, the Cubs, uh, you know, what's their John Lester move? 
Um, what, when do they mm-hmm. say, well, now this is the year that we're really actually going for it. And, you know, obviously they got somewhat close with, with Manny Machado last off season. And, and that, that would have changed the way that this season would have been viewed. Uh, I, I think overall the, the White Sox rebuild is, is going very well. And we've seen a lot of guys take steps forward this season, but you know, the, the teams that, that do well and move forward, eliminate the holes that they have. And the White Sox still have a, a decent amount uh, of holes that, that need filling. And uh, they obviously still need, you know, Potentially, you know, that, that, that workhorse ace at the, the top of the rotation to, to show that they're going to, to take a step forward in 2020. And I don't see a reason why 2020 wouldn't be the year that the White Sox sort of go in. You know, the, the Twins have had a, a really great season, but nothing is guaranteed for them next year. And, and Cleveland, we've seen them sort of cutting back uh, over the last few years and they just traded Trevor Bauer. So they're, they're they're sort of in a position where they could have a down year as well, and uh, the Royals and, and Tigers are still far away. So I think that there's an opportunity there for the White Sox in 2020, but uh, they, they can't just go into the season with all of their good young players and think that that's going to get them over the top. You mentioned as far as the teams moving forward in your piece that you wrote for in the Fangraphs piece that in the last four years there are seven franchises that have continually fielded very good teams that six of them had above average payrolls and five of those teams are actually among the top six spenders in the game. Now there's one, obviously I don't think any team could just add a lot of payroll and then that would lead to being a very successful team. It depends on what kind of spending I assume Craig that teams are as far as acquiring players and what kind of players, because for example, Jerry Reinsdorf after the season, Craig gave Jose Abreu a hundred million dollar contract to help boost payroll. Uh, I don't, even though they are significantly is increasing their payroll in 2020, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, but I'm not sure that giving Jose Abreu a hundred million dollar contract is going to lead to more wins for the White Sox. Or am I wrong with that? That if teams do invest a lot of money, even with mid-tier players like the Jose Braves in the league, that it does lead to more wins. Well, I think that, you know, when you see teams sort of go for it, um, you know, the, the the Astros haven't added that type of player, you know, but they have gone after Josh Reddick. They have gone after Michael Brantley. And those are the type of players that increase payroll and increase sort of your floor and make sure that, that you're still going to be competitive and make sure that you don't have any holes on the roster. And so we saw the Phillies add Bryce Harper, but they also added Andrew McCutcheon. And so, you know, the, the Jose Abreu $100 million example doesn't doesn't help them, but Jose Abreu at 40 or $50 million uh, probably does. Um, and obviously that doesn't help the team get any better on paper than they were uh, this season, but there are a number of free agents who are going to be available who are like Jose Abreu, Jose Abreu, who are average to above average players that you can plug in out in right field or in your third or fourth spot in the rotation. And that's going to add, you know, you add two of those guys and that that adds the, the same amount of wins potentially as as one superstar would. Now, if you feel going into next season that you're a 75 to 80 win team, then, you know, you you want to add about 10 wins. So if you add two of those role players and one superstar, 
now all of a sudden you're you're at an 85 win team and you can say at the beginning of the season that, that you're a contender now for season ticket holders please do not attack your car radio or your smartphone after i make this next comment the Chicago White Sox, according to Spot Track, have the lowest committed payroll going into 2020 for Major League Baseball at a whopping $23.8 million. This is before arbitration contracts are approved, which is still not going to add quite a bit. We are assuming that the White Sox could be around 38 to $40 million after the arbitration deals uh, before free agency really kicks into high gear. We are assuming Rick Hahn will be working with a lot of cash this upcoming offseason. If you were a White Sox fan listening to this conversation, Craig, what would be a good payroll number for the White Sox to hit that would instill confidence in you that, yes, this team can now be considered as a serious contender in 2020? You know, I think that, you know, you're talking about that $15 million figure or whatever, and then you add maybe $20, $25 million in in arbitration, that's 40. You know, you add maybe another $20 million for Obreu, that's $60 million. And, you know, you you should be able to double that. Uh, I don't think it's... I, I think doubling it, uh, you know, is what you should be doing almost at, at a minimum. Um, you know, if you want to contend next season and with the, the young players that the White Sox have, I don't see why you wouldn't try to contend next season. I think that, you know, they, they caught a lot of rough breaks, I would say, in the development stage in 2018 and uh, in 2019 with Giolito performing well. And we've seen Moncada and Anderson take steps forward and Jimenez is getting his feet wet and, and holding his own. And, you know, maybe even Ronaldo Lopez uh, can can be uh, a guy who can who can take some innings in the rotation. You have a really good young core and you've got Madrigal and, and Robert and, uh, you know, potentially already Vaughn that, that that could be close to contributing by the end, start or end of next season. And it, you need you need to make that push for, for 2020 uh, with the expectation that this young core is going to be in, in contention for the next four to five years. Plenty of payroll to sign Anthony Rendon and Garrett Cole. That's what I'm hearing from you, Craig. <laughs> you know, they're going to have uh, quite a bit of uh, competition in that regard. I think uh, you know, <laughs> Cole especially, you know, everybody's already saying the Angels, but I don't know why the Yankees wouldn't be in on that. And right. when you have those those two bidders involved, uh, you know, it, it's going to go nuts. And uh, Rendon is a guy who you're going to have to move move spots around uh, in, in the lineup. But, uh, you know, he's a guy who tends to be underrated, I think, uh, a little bit. And it, if if he comes in at, at a reasonable figure, there's there's no reason to 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 think that the White Sox shouldn't be players for a guy like Rendon. Now, the other topic you explored that's been on a lot of baseball fans minds is the bullpen. It seems that relievers in 2019 are having more difficulties holding on the leads. And you graphed this out comparing FIPS between starting pitchers and relievers. And 2019 is the first time since before 2002 where relievers have a worse FIP than starting pitchers. What do you think is leading to this setback in performance league-wide for bullpens? 
Well, I mean, first you have, you have to recognize that starters are, are doing worse too. Uh, you know, the, the scoring is up for everybody. Um, and that's starters and relievers, but this is the first time in, you know, basically forever that the relievers on the whole are actually performing worse than the starters. And, you know, I look, I looked into it and, you know, every season there's, there's been this gap uh, you know, in, in medium and high leverage situations c- compared to the starters. And this year there's, there's still that gap. So when there are important game situations going on, the relievers are still doing better than, than the average starters are. And, and where, where the difference is and where things get really bad is in the low leverage situations and in the moments of the game that, that aren't quite as important, uh, the, the pitchers that are, that are out there. Uh, they're, they're just not really living up to the moment. And they're the ones that are really tanking the, the performance overall for, for relievers. And, you know, some of that's probably because starters aren't pitching as much. And so managers are, uh, you know, just letting, uh, relievers who, who they wouldn't let pitch in important situations pitch in unimportant situations. And they aren't quite as, as good. And, and that, that's sort of junking up the numbers for, for everybody. One area that Rick Hahn has shown to be more comfortable in making additions is the bullpen. He's gotten Kelvin Herrera last year, uh, willing to sign him, even though they missed out on Manny Machado. Uh, Even before that, back in 2015, he gave David Robertson then the largest contract to any reliever. So even going into this upcoming offseason, we expect Rick Hahn to help bolster the bullpen as well. But as of 2019, where do the White Sox compare to the rest of Major League Baseball, Craig? Uh, I mean, I, I think that relative to to the rest of the team, um, they're 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 doing they're doing okay. Um, but uh, it's not a great situation. But uh, I, I think that they're they're sort of middle of the pack. Um, you know, I, I think that. Uh, you know, you, you don't that they're not I mean, they're, they're not great. They're not terrible. And you see a lot of teams that are sort of in the White Sox tier um, in, in terms of wins and losses have pretty awful bullpens. And so I think that that can sort of be a, a bit of a confidence booster for a team that's that's younger. And, you know, you don't end up with 100 losses. You end up a, a lot more competitive. Uh, but obviously, you know, the when you really want the bullpen to be good is, is when uh, you're fighting for that playoff spot. I just feel when it comes to bullpens that it's going to make the National League postseason just chaos. Like, I'm really looking forward to the like a Cubs Braves series. You will not know what to expect after the seventh inning, I feel. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and you know the the Braves have have made a bunch of additions, and we'll see how they they, they turn out. But also uh, those both of those stadiums, um, you know that you, you'd see depending on the weather in Wrigley and just uh, in Atlanta, the the ball flies out. So I you know yeah, there there could be a lot of uh, ill timed homers depending on on which fan base you're cheering for. Now, we did get one Patreon question from one of our Patreon supporters, and this is from Azenrec, and they're going to ask you about Luis Robert. So his question to you is, pretend you have Rick Hahn's ear. How do you make the case to Rick Hahn that calling up Luis Robert this season is in the team's best interest? I, I think you you point to Eloy Jimenez and Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and you say, look, those guys, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say got bored last year, but uh, 
they were too good for their competition last year. And when they opened the season this this year, they struggled a bit. And uh, if you can get those struggles out of the way, you're going to make for a much better player in 2020. And uh, assuming you want to compete and contend in 2020, the, the, the player is going to be much better off for having had that experience this season. You can follow Craig on Twitter. He's at Craig J. Edwards, and you can read his excellent work on Fangraphs.com, which he does hold a weekly chat, just like our best friend of the show, Dan Zaborski. And if you can let Dan know, Craig, I did say best friend of the show. So if he asks you, (laughs) did Josh say that I was the best friend of the show? You can tell him, yes, he did. Uh, It's an important title to Dan. But anyways, (laughs) Craig, thank you for your terrific analysis. You do such a great job of trying to find the answers a lot of us in baseball have questions about. So thank you so much for your always excellent work on Fangraphs. And thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Happy to do it. Our next guest is living a dream most of us would love to experience. Imagine if you quit your job and decided to go to all 30 Major League Baseball ballparks over the course of one season that would be a once in a lifetime adventure for anyone that lived in the states now imagine you are from england and you're staying in the country for most of a year taking this journey to help grow the sport of baseball back home well that's the story of joey mellows who is better known as the baseball brit on twitter as he inches closer to fulfilling his goal that he set out back in February, and he just made his visit to Chicago. And Joey, thank you so much for joining the Sox Machine podcast. I'd like you to be on, Josh. Thanks for having me, mate. I love your story, and I am insanely jealous of you. But as we are in late August, is this idea of trying to visit every Major League Baseball ballpark and also the minor league ballparks that you have visited uh, still a bonkers of an idea? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be very tight to squeeze in 162 games. This was the original plan. Um, I think I'm on game 117 and 18 today. I'm doing a Chicago doubleheader. So, uh, yeah, but it's been a lot, Josh, and uh, yeah, it's still quite a long way to go. So what's been the most difficult part in trying to accomplish this goal? Um, I mean, I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something that lots of people would love to do themselves. So, you know, there, there aren't too many difficulties, really. And most mornings I'll wake up and I'm not entirely sure where I'm going to sleep that night. Um, you know, that's kind of an average day. Uh, tonight, for example, I'm staying, I went to a bar last night after the Cubs game and I met someone uh, who worked there and I'm staying at his house tonight uh, after the Sox game. I'm going to go back to his house. So it's just kind of coincidences and chance and, you know, taking a, a few risks with uh, the kindness of strangers, really, uh, to make sure that I can get through through this journey. So what's been your favorite part of the journey so far? Uh, favorite part, without a doubt, has just been, you know, being, uh, being in the car on the open road, uh, exploring new places, uh, meeting new people, trying different cuisine. Uh, you know, your country's so huge and there's so many different regions and things and the accents are hilarious, I find, you know, in some parts of the country. So, uh, yeah, I'd say that's been the best part, just being on the open road and never really knowing where, where the day will lead. See, nobody in Chicago, though, has an accent, Joey. Nobody does. <laughs> you guys have got a really strong one up here. Yeah, it's pretty. We know like about the Chicago accent from all the gangster movies and stuff. I know that's probably a bit of a stereotype you want to escape from, but uh, it's a really cool. Like back in Europe, the Chicago accent is is seen as a very cool accent. 
<laughs> yeah, we're not fans of the New York accent in Chicago, so we don't share the same <laughs> we don't share the same sentiment. But so this weekend you made it to Chicago. Is this your first time visiting the city? No, I have been here once before to see the Chicago Dogs. I know they're out by O'Hare. Um yeah, the independent baseball team in the American Association. Uh but this is my first time being at either Guaranteed Rate Field or or Wrigley. And yeah, many have tried, some have succeeded, a lot have failed in attempting the red line doubleheader. So you did this on Friday and Saturday, where you went to the Cubs game in the afternoon, and then you just took the red line south to the White Sox game at night. What has that experience been like for you? Oh, it's so easy. You know, it's incredible. Um, coming from you know Europe and you know living in London previously, you know, public transport is something that most people use to get around more efficiently and more quickly. Uh, than driving and uh, I'm so grateful that she has this sophisticated public transport and I could just jump on the red line don't even have to change um, and just sit on there for about 30-35 minutes and then yeah I get to get two baseball games in in a day and I think that's fantastic Now what are your thoughts about Guaranteed Rate Field? You know what before I turned up there on Thursday I've heard some bad things about it and I have absolutely no idea where where they've come from because genuinely I, I really love it Gonna, you know, this isn't going to be a very popular opinion, but I would rather go and watch a game there than I would at Wrigley, um, to be quite frank with you. It's just a lot easier. It's cheaper, more affordable. Um, I think personally, you know, you get a more diverse fan base there as well. And uh, yeah, I've said it. I would rather go and watch a White Sox game than a Cubs game. Hell yeah. You have just made a lot of friends on the South Side, Joey. <laughs> I say yeah, that. Southside represent. <laughs> yeah, Southside boy. Oh man, well that is very refreshing to hear. And, and you know, for the White Sox, they're always looking for opportunities to expand their fan base and market. So, kind of take from your expertise because Major League Baseball, I don't know how big of an effort that they're trying to make in these games in London. We know that there are, for example, White Sox fans in England because we hear from them and they come visit us uh, as much as they possibly can uh, as far as with timing and holidays and vacations. But from a baseball perspective, in your opinion, Joey, what do you think it will take for Major League Baseball as a league or maybe a team like the White Sox to try to capture more interest for those that do live in England? The problem that the White Sox face in terms of growing their fan base in the UK is the fact that the Cubs have lots of afternoon games. And the biggest kind of uh, difficulty for people finding or stumbling across baseball in in the UK is the time difference. So an afternoon game at Wrigley is on at 8pm back in England. um, And therefore, it's very easy for people to watch the Cubs. Whereas the White Sox games, for example, tonight at 7 o'clock, I think it is, or 6 o'clock, that'll be on at past midnight back in, uh, back in the UK. Um, so the White Sox, being up against the Cubs, do have you know, a fairly uh, unique kind of difficulty there. But uh, I think it, you know, the fashion helps sometimes. Uh, you know, you've got some young, exciting players coming, uh, coming up through the ranks. I know, you know Moncada's been a lot better this season, as perhaps hasn't had the season that we might afford, but uh, he's one to keep an eye on. And... Uh, yeah, obviously, you know, the big story this year has been uh, Giolito. They were, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure how the White Sox specifically can get that fan base, but, uh, you know, breeding more exciting players will certainly help. Do you think that, because again, it's going to be the Chicago Cubs and St. Louis Cardinals next season in London while the White Sox will play the Yankees yeah. in Iowa. I, I think it'd be worthwhile if the White Sox did play a series in London, maybe in 2021, just to give it an experiment. But do you think that this is something that can happen 
every season where Major League Baseball can make it work for two, maybe three games playing a series in London. Yeah, um, you know, from what I've heard, this is a this is a ten year a ten year footprint really that MLB wants to stamp on on Europe. They're they're only contracted to have two games in London. Uh, one we've already had the Red Sox and the Yankees, and then as you as you said, the Cubs and Cardinals are coming over in 2020. It's 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 you know, to my knowledge, the MLB will be moving to other European cities in 2021. Although nothing is yet confirmed, that is very much my expectation and what I've been told. Um, and I think it'd be fantastic for teams like the White Sox to get out there uh, and expand their fan base uh, and expand the awareness people have of their team. Uh, because the White Sox have that unique kind of logo uh, that is, you know, was very popular in the 90s. I saw it a lot, you know, in London, uh, you know, perhaps due to West Coast rap bands or whatever. Uh, but the White Sox do have that kind of, you know, cool uh, culture um, and clothing that could certainly catch on back, uh, back in Europe. And then if, if the baseball team comes over as well, uh, then it's only going to grow. What other cities in London do you think baseball could catch on? In, uh, in Europe, I mean, uh, currently Italy is a, is a hotbed for, for baseball within Europe. Uh, the Netherlands is another one. Um, you have places like the Czech Republic and uh, Spain. Um, of course, you know, where I'm from, Great Britain as well, the United Kingdom. Um, you know, there's lots of potential places for the baseball to really start growing. Um, and I'm surprised Major League Baseball hasn't come over before. The NFL is very well established now. Uh, they come they came over four four times last season. I think they're over in London three times this season coming up. Um, and it's time Major League Baseball catches up, I think. So then after your experience here, going across the country, visiting all these stadiums and hitting up a game for 162 days, What's the end result, Joey? Are, are you going to be writing a book about this experience? Are you filming yourself? Are you going to make a TV show? Will you become Major League Baseball's ambassador in London? <laughs> um, certainly not, no. Uh, I think the end result is going to be destitution, uh, bankruptcy, credit card <laughs> debt. Uh, I, I, you know what, Josh? Like, when I started off on this, on this crazy adventure, there was no end goal. And they're still you know, six, seven weeks away from the end of the regular season or whatever. There still isn't a master plan. I have no idea what it's going to lead to. Uh, probably nothing, and I'll probably go back to teaching. Uh, if there if there was a way, you know, perhaps I will sit down and write a book. So much crazy stuff happened on the road, you know, aside from the baseball. If I could write a book that's as much about a foreigner's view of the USA, driving around the different states, and then incorporate baseball in it as I do each evening, uh, then that would be something that perhaps I'd like to sit down and write in the off-season. But uh, there's no master plan. Well, I, again, am very jealous of your experience. This It's just been so much fun following you on Twitter as you go through this and all the updates from all the stadiums. I'm so happy that you really have enjoyed your experience at Guaranteed Rate Field. And uh, hopefully, love it, love it. hopefully you are not a stranger uh, in the future. I don't know how much, I mean, are you, are you, I guess, oversaturated with baseball? Are you tired of watching all these games? I ask that every now and then, and the answer is uh, emphatic no. Um, I'll always, always have time for baseball. I love it. You know, I got into it in Korea and Japan, and the energy of the fans over there is really where I get my own passion for the sport from. And uh, I just wanted to grow as much as I can, and uh, I'll do what I keep doing. Uh, to try and make sure that happens back home and also here in the USA. Well, you can follow Joey's excellent adventure on Twitter. He's at Baseball Brit. And Joey, this is awesome getting a chance to speak with you. Good luck accomplishing your goal for the rest of the season. And I hope you encounter no cancel flights or any missing luggage (laughs) during your adventure. Josh, it's been a pleasure being on, mate. Thanks for having me again. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. 
Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Welcome to the Minor League Report and the last full week of the Minor League season. Charlotte Knights look like the only playoff-bound affiliate as they concealed the deal with the wildcard this week. They lost two in a row to Norfolk over the weekend to drop two and a half games back of first place Gwinnett, but they still hold a four-game lead over Durham for the wildcard with seven games remaining, including three against Durham starting on Monday. They win the series, they go to the postseason. Luis Robert homered over the weekend, giving him a 30-30 season over just 114 games. He hit eight homers apiece with Winston-Salem and Birmingham before exploding for 14 home runs in Charlotte. So he now has 30 home runs to go with his 36 steals in 2019. Nick Madrigal also had a strong week with four doubles and five walks over a seven-game hitting streak. After a slow start, he joins every Charlotte Knights hitter except for Sebi Zavala with an OPS above 800. Birmingham's outfield's hunt for 700 OPS is going to have a nail-biting finish over the final week. Luis Gonzalez has a shot as as his OPS is 689, while Blake Rutherford is going to need the week of all weeks to get there as his current OPS is 667. There's better news on the pitching side as Bernardo Flores is basically back to where he was before he strained his oblique, throwing three decent outings out of four with the Barons this month. He'll finish short of 100 innings thrown after logging 156 last season, so he may be a candidate for extra work during the Arizona Fall League. The Winston-Salem Dash were shut out both Saturday and Sunday, which is basically what happens when two players are most of the offense. Andrew Vaughn's average has dropped to 235 with a dash after a slow week, and Walker registered just one hit over the weekend. Again, you have to look to the pitching side for progress. Jonathan Stever threw six shutout innings on Saturday to lower his Winston-Salem ERA to 2.22, and Connor Pickleton has reduced his ERA in each of his last five starts as he does what he can to salvage what's been a pretty lackluster season. The Canapolis Intimidators get ready for their last four games at Intimidator Stadium. They'll close out that era on Thursday, after which they'll join the rest of the White Sox full-season affiliates with a new, beautiful downtown stadium. That's about the biggest news from the team, aside from Davis Martin reaching 150 strikeouts and London Sosa coming up with three two-hit games over the weekend. The Great Falls Voyagers season runs a few days longer than the full-season affiliates, so they get until the Friday after next to try to avoid finishing the year with the league's worst OPS. The Arizona League for the White Sox team got a big week from Logan Glass. The White Sox signed him away from a Kansas commitment after drafting him in the 22nd round, and he rebounded from a dreadful start with 10 hits over three games this week. And the Dominican White Sox League wrapped up their season on Saturday, finishing with a record of 35-35. and The roster boasts a number of success stories with strong showings from shortstop Yobert Sanchez and outfielder Benjamin Bailey and catcher Ruben Benavides and pitcher Ronaldo Gomez in their pro debuts. That will do it for the Minor League Report. Now let's answer your guys' questions in P.O. Socks. 
You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, following us on Twitter at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, and helping support the site and show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And rejoining me on the podcast to answer your questions is Jim Margulis. And Jim, the first question that we have is from Johan Dabrinsky, who I got to meet on Saturday's game. So, Johan, thank you for your question and great to, to meet up with you. And Johan is asking, following up on Sunday morning's post, what do you feel are the redeeming qualities of guaranteed rate field? I feel the completely circular concourse is a plus. Also, the combo of car and public transit access. And Jim, Joey mentioned that he touched on as far as the car and public transit access, making it very easy. Of course, Chicago has is considered one of the best cities in the world when it comes to public transit. Uh, maybe the people that live here don't necessarily agree with that. However, you know, he talked about the sight lines and I got to sit uh, in an inning with Joey on Saturday's game. And he mentioned just when you sit up in the 500 level, it is a great view uh, of watching the game, you see everything. He mentioned the tickets. The tickets are much more affordable than going to Wrigley Field. He enjoyed the crowd more at Guarantee Rate Field than he did at Wrigley. So those were the big pluses in his book. Yeah, I think you know along those lines. Yeah, there's also the food. Uh, it's, it's hard to uh, uh, it's hard to go hungry there. Uh, so I would put that in the list. But yeah, I think when you add all it up, the the sight lines, I would say the lower deck sight lines, the upper deck sight lines can be basically, at least they've lowered the price of the upper deck tickets to where you're paying, you get what you pay for. Um, when it comes to the um, lower deck, the sight lines are great wherever you go. But really when you add it all up, like just being able to show up to the park, get a decent seat, and then like move around over the course of the game, yeah, especially after the seventh inning, I think you can move around wherever you want basically. Uh, it's a very democratic experience. Uh, and, and you see this with fewer and fewer parks. There are more cordoned off places and moats in between the premium seats and the non-premium seats. And, you know, the White Sox have a couple areas like that with the Goose Island and the scout seats. But otherwise, you know, it's, it's you can get to any row by um, just walking down and seeing if you get stopped. Uh, and, and, you know, they do check tickets and such, and I don't recommend you know, annoying people by sitting in their seats, but you just don't have those artificial barriers in the way in most sections um, to where it feels like, you know, you're, you're prohibited from enjoying something uh, because you don't make a certain amount of money or you, you, know, you didn't, uh, you know, have this connection or something like that. It, it's very much a, um, you know, the, the seating is very open and very um, accommodating. And, you know, part of that is, you know, the, the, the low attendance, but I think it just adds to the thing where if you show up and everybody's there and you're sitting next to people who are showing up to watch a game, everybody's paying attention to the same thing. And I think it does add to, um, yeah, I think there's more of a common experience among fans who go uh, versus other parks to where, you know, whether it's tourists or whether it's a, you know, a bunch of uh, different entertainment options or restaurant areas or whatever, uh, where you just have a bunch of fans who might not be there for the game. And I think, you know, teams are smart to, you know, make the stadiums a draw for different reasons. You know, you don't want to put all your eggs in the baseball basket if the baseball quality baseball dries up. But as it stands, the White Sox really have a, a 
a stadium that puts the field at the center of attention, and they do a good job of not getting in the way of it. You know, that's front and center. You can watch it front and center. You can, you can get to your seats or move around uh, pretty easily without feeling like you're breaking laws. And it's, uh, you know, it's just nice. When you go to other stadiums and you realize that, uh, you know, it, it's a lot more structured and uh, there are a lot more obstacles in place to being able to see the game from where you want to see it. Johan, thank you so much for your question. Our next question in P.O. Sox comes from Mike Locks. And Mike is asking, any chance we see Jonathan Stever in Chicago by the All-Star break next year? He's already at 140 innings this year, so they shouldn't really have to manage his workload much. Uh, well, it depends really on how Michael Kopech and Dane Dunning come back. Uh, I think they would be in his way. And I think uh, you know, Rick Hahn is saying that they're going to start the season in Charlotte, or at least they're penciling him them to start the season in Charlotte. And I don't, you know, especially Kopech, like that's the, maybe a controversial idea, but uh, given how difficult it's been for White Sox players to come back from Tommy John surgery smoothly, I think it's, and in that case, it's better for Han to be cautious and not overpromise too much there. Um, but, you know, they're going to be in his way as young pitchers who don't have a spot ready for them but but should be able to earn them if they can pick up where they left off. Carlos Rodon coming back if he's able to uh, be ready by the second half and and look like he did in the first half, he should have a spot. So there might be more pitchers than spots, you know, if all goes well. Um and Stever might have a hard time breaking in, and the White Sox might not want to, um, you know, start his service time if there's really no spot for him to get, um, you know, get looks. Uh, however, you know, based on how you know the Tommy John surgery thing happening, and with uh, you know Rodon never being a guarantee to be ready on any certain timetable, um, he could be in a situation like Jimmy Lambert was in if Jimmy Lambert was able to stay healthy and avoid Tommy John surgery. Where Lambert, you know, if he were healthy and, and given the way he was pitching at Birmingham and given how little was in his way in Charlotte, you know, he could have broken onto the roster uh, this month probably um, if he were able to keep it together. Um, so if you if you give Stever that kind of trajectory, and I think they are cut from a similar cloth, it's possible. Uh, I think a lot would have to go wrong. I, I think if Stever's in the rotation more went wrong than it went right. So I guess it's something I'm not <laughs> rooting for. Uh, but it's possible that he could break in and, on his own merits and actually, uh, I guess, deserve it and be uh, be in the rotation, not because he's the best available option, but because he made himself the best available option among other worthy options. I wonder how many offseason plans will have proposed trades with Jonathan Stever for the White Sox to yeah. acquire somebody better. Yeah, that's probably worth a post. At some point, you know, I did that last year with all the outfielders, uh, with uh, Luis Robert, Luis Gonzalez, and Mike Rodolfo, and, and Luis Basave, and you know this uh, Blake Rutherford, this big outfield glut they had, and uh, I, I looked at it and thought, oh, you know, this is the opportunity for a trade, and they traded Alex Call, and that was it. And I think the outfield has more or less sorted itself out this season, but I'll probably do the same thing again with guys who are tradable uh, and, and have some value in whether the White Sox or our, our off-season planners have the guts to consider them in trades. But yeah, he would probably be number one on that list of guys outside of the top five who have most of their trade value intact. It's probably him and Steel Walker. Our next question comes from Pete Chapman. And Pete is asking, Jim, why do the White Sox refuse to move position players around the field? I don't know why Yomer could only play third last year and only second this year. Why Mikata the opposite? 
Good teams have flexibility, and it can save teams when an injury occurs. I think part of it, I, I think there might be a few reasons, maybe no one leading reason, but I can I can think of a few factors. One is that, you know, I think they rely on super subs to do a lot of that, like Larry Garcia. I think he's somebody who is the uh, guy that they look at to plug that hole in the infield if one arises. And that's not necessarily a bad strategy. It's just, uh, you know, one they've gone with, you know, and, and before him it was Jose Rondon, now Ryan Goins, and maybe it's Danny Mendick in the future, just like it was Tyler Saladino in the past. They've always had a kind of utility infielder who at least, you know, has been able to position himself as a spot starter for periods of a time. I think Saladino, you know, he, had, he did have a period where he was an average starter for, you could plug him into the lineup and he'd be an average starter for a month and then, uh, that kind of uh, got away from him, but you know he was there, and I think maybe they might look at you know Danny Mendick as the next man up, or maybe Nick Madrigal comes in and solves the whole flexibility thing. I also wonder, you know, if it's partially the Gordon Beckham thing and how moving him from a position after he succeeded at one position, trying to move him uh, to second, and it blew up on him, and his career was never the same, and you know there are a whole bunch of contributing factors to that. But I do wonder if there's maybe some. Uh, thought or regret the White Sox have from putting too much on his plates when so much was expected of him, especially somebody as important as Mankata. I think, you know, maybe Yolmer himself um, is more or less the result of where they want to play Mankata. But uh, I'm guessing with him and how much they're counting on him, they just might not want to add much to his plate. Maybe, you know, if he gets to a point where he's reliable and and his offensive approach is basically there's no way to knock him off track for any long periods of time maybe then they they consider that he uh, any kind of defensive responsibilities won't uh, affect the way he's hitting but until i think he solidifies himself as that star offensive player and, and proves that uh, nothing can really knock him off that track they might not want to do that. I, I do think it would be cool, like the other we've seen the Indians do with Jose Ramirez, to have that kind of player who's that good of a hitter and any, you know, a guy you can place at various positions based on who else is available. I, I'd like to see that. Um, but you know, I'm guessing that might be one reason. And, and it could be just, you know, maybe not Beckham himself, but it also could just be the White Sox not really wanting to experiment. You know, you have... Yeah, it's not just the lineups. It's like not using the opener. It's like uh, you know, being pretty rigid or over cautious with lineup construction, especially like leadoff guys or um, where any kind of um, experiment is seen as this massive um, divorce from previous uh, previous lineups and previous ways of doing things and what's happening versus like a team like, you know, the Rays or, or the Cubs under Madden or, or, you know, the Indians under Francona with their flexibility to where, or, or like the Yankees with the way they're using the opener where everybody says like, Oh, it'll probably work out because uh, they generally know what they're doing when they try something like this. The White Sox don't have the confidence or the will, or they, or they just think that it's a failure if they have to resort to those means. So they don't. And, uh, I think it could be a combination of all three, and hopefully with, if Moncada can you know, continue to just... I think at this point his strikeout rate works, but if he can continue to lower it a little bit as he gets to know the league better and, and, and his swings even out from both sides of the plate, that maybe he can be that uh, guy who's impossible uh, to get in a slump for any kind of meaningful period of time. And then maybe, you know, should uh, injuries happen or player availabilities happen where like, you know, all of a sudden you have this opportunity to add somebody who's a great third baseman and Mankata's the guy you can move. Maybe that's how you do it. 
Pete, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week in P.O. Sox. Great questions as always, guys. Thank you so much. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. And also helping support the show and site by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where our Patreon supporters get an ad-free edition of the show. They get an opportunity to ask questions to our guests. For example, Craig Edwards gave his thoughts on why the White Sox should call up Luis Robert. And our Patreon supporters get additional P.O. Sox questions answered by Jim and I for every episode. So if you enjoy our work and you would like more, go to patreon.com slash Machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this edition of the Sox Machine podcast. Again, thank you to our guests, uh, both Joey Mellows at Baseball Brit. You could follow along in his journey of visiting all the Major League ballparks this year. Uh, just a terrific story and first time guest and hopefully uh, someone that will become a friend of the podcast, Craig Edwards of Fangraphs.com. He does terrific work analyzing everything that's going on in Major League Baseball and it was great to chat with him. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show in a number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on Internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.